Welcome to the Outsider Theory Podcast, where we explore the mutations of theories outside of the authorized spaces of intellectual life, as well as the ever-alluring figure of the outsider. If you're interested in this project, please subscribe to the podcast and follow my work at OutsiderTheory.com and at OutsiderTheory on Twitter. Monica Belevan is a, an outsider art historian or gonzo art historian who recently has been working on a, a phenomenal and fascinating project called Covidian Aesthetics. And she's been generous enough with her time to uh, join me today to talk about that. So thanks for coming on. Hi, Jeff. And just for those unaware of her work, um, I would point you to, first of all, the Covidian Aesthetics substack, covidianaesthetics.substack.com. Also to her website, Lapsus Lima. And you can also follow her on Twitter at Lapsus Lima. And finally, you can also search the hashtag Kultur Instinct, which we'll be talking about in a minute, um, to find the uh, sort of collection and curation and collation of, of sort of fragments of this uh, bizarre cultural moment we've been living through in the past year. And thinking about her body of work, I came up with the, the designation that comes from a Bob Dylan song you may know, um, Hypnotist Collector. So I ran that by Monica, and she thought that was okay as a as a way of describing what she does. Um, so I'm going to also introduce her as a hypnotist collector. So again, thanks for coming on. Thank you so much, Jeff. Yeah, so let's start with Kultur Instinct. Um, in one of your writings from this year, you bring up a, a discussion of the, the COVID moment by the philosopher of science, Lorraine Daston, where she refers to moments of crisis bringing about a situation of zero degree empiricism when we're, we're simply kind of looking around at the world and in a somewhat haphazard and disordered way, just kind of grasping at, at different objects and, and trying to create some kind of model or picture of it. So I sort of understand this culture instinct hashtag in those terms. I don't know if you think that's a that's an adequate description, but um, perhaps you could talk about how it how it first um, became one of your projects and what you were attempting to do with it and sort of perhaps how it's evolved over time. Yeah, well, when, when, when COVID struck, I was in a sort of ground zero situation. And, you know, it's, it's one of those circumstances where you decide I'm either going to take the blow and, and roll with it and, uh, and try or, or, or just sink. And so I tried to um, not even theorize because culture instinct was pre-theoretical in that sense, but start labeling or tracking what I felt was the larger egregore of the COVID moment. And, uh, you know, it's got many legs, many limbs, many heads, and I've, I've been keeping tabs on different things. And over time, I hope, and I'm already doing this um, for the films, to start piecing this shape together. And this is a shape made of people, made of ideas, made of um speeding up and slowing down parts and it's you know it's 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 very organic it's uh persistently evolving it has um it's alive and it's been treated as such you know this is basically uh this is my questing beast and i follow at this point and what um what was significant to me is that i thought you know this is this this whole covidian chapter which we don't know when it will end but we do know when it started is uh, is going to be a significant subchapter 
in the Anthropocene. Anthropocene and one of these um, subcategories will one day be the Covidian. And that's why I'm choosing, you know, this is a this is an epical moment. This is a clinamen, but it's also going to be part of a before and after discursive eating. And so you start playing with with a sort of presentist history that isn't only about, you know, speculating about the future. You have a lot of futurists and we have for a while. Futurists are nothing new. But uh, I'm trying to be, to historicize them now. And uh, that sounds like a complete contradiction in terms as a historian, um, because I have to work with what's ahead and what's what's behind me. But the level of immersion that I've had in this COVID thing has been uh, painfully privileged. And so I'm trying to make the most of it. So you brought up the the films. So just since the new year, you and um, the filmmaker Charlie Curran have yeah. collaborated on this. Uh, there are three so far as of recording. So far. And there will is, be more. Which oh is, yeah, there will be more. And if you yeah. see, you know, they're they're um, they're numbered in a way that that makes room for even hundreds. And it's a durational project, like like all of these that have coalesced under COVID aesthetics, which include um, cultural instincts and hyperbaroque. Uh, they're all converging into what I realized. No, this isn't. This is a new emerging aesthetics. This is this is what it is. And yeah, I realized, you know, talking with Charlie, he is the other maniacal indexer who collected um, media and you know, like like films and snippets and fragments and interviews. And I was like, oh, this is. You know, we have to merge these things and see what happens, and and it happens, <laughs> and it happens fast. Which is, um, I think, uh, you know, we're not. Uh, it's extremely expedient, um, aggressive filmmaking. It's um, we work with what we have, which is fortunately a lot, and we're basically DJing the present, and it's wild. It's really entertaining for one. And it's intense. We are both uh, late night workers. And I think we're tapping into something by making it sort of law. It, it, it's, they're not documentaries. They don't have that level of intellectual mediation. Um, they're kind of uh, slap you in the face and you respond to it. They're, they're, they're uh, extremely re- reactionary in that provocative sense. And uh, it's really interesting because um, last week, Charlie sent me a... Um, a snippet of a of a breaking news, shocking video of the Q shaman released by CNN, and we had we had found that video and you know put it in our in in our film, and it wasn't breaking news and it wasn't shocking by any measure, but you know again it's 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 perception, it's preference, it's timing, and um, and we're we feel that we are you know about two weeks ahead of the mainstream media, and there is something there there. Um, so some people are using us as a sort of, of sounding board about, you know, where is it going? What's the what's the vibe? And uh, yeah, so I think the, the, the films are just working wonderfully and they're, they're an absolute delight. Yeah, they are. Uh, and people should check them out. All Tomorrow's Parties um, and they're all <laughs> on your Substack. So and I do see them as continuous with this early project of of zero degree empiricism, where, as you said, Absolutely. they're 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 not mediated by some no. kind of conceptual apparatus. They're really, I mean, they're curated, right? They are curated um, in, an, um, in an aesthetic manner, but they are largely kind of giving it to us raw, um, yeah, in a sense. Yeah, yeah. And and they're, I mean, the the most recent one, again, uh, in terms of history of the present, was the the game GameStop. <laughs> moment right which our latest you know, and came out yeah pretty fast on the heels of the events themselves and extremely you know really did a fascinating job of 
historicizing this, you know, moment that people were still bewildered by, right? When, I mean, it, it hadn't ended yet and, and people were still not only kind that, of reeling because, with confusion. Yeah, when you're working with that level of immediacy and rawness and, you know, it's unprocessed and fairly unfiltered, what you get is some insight into what the other uh, subjacent structures of these sort of movements are. And so what we saw here is that the whole GameStop thing was very spontaneous and was very rapid. And at the same time, if you um, if you investigated the community, you realize that there was an underlying mythology. And that's what we tried to capture in this movie, that it is a hero's journey inside a hero's journey inside a hero's journey, all through a series of, of, of films, uh, many of them blockbusters. And so there's this whole mythos that's already um, giving rise to these things that are not um, that are partly explainable because of it. And there's a lot of mythic movement. You know, there's been a lot of emphasis on saying, you know, um, COVID's impacts on on, 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 on on politics and on economics and on, on, on public health, but even on psychology. But what has been um, underlooked and remains understudied. And eventually you, you can see people doing this 30 years from now. But I'm not aware that many people are doing it right now is uh, what about the symbolic transformation, um, the symbolic impact of COVID? How do you address that? And, 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 is it, and is it happening? And you know, the more I work along this vein, the more I'm convinced that, yeah, there are definitely big symbolic um, uh, commitments and shifts both happening. Absolutely. And I would also use the term from Raymond Williams, structure of feeling, Oh, part, yes. of what I, part of what I, I find that your work is getting at is the, the shifting structure of feeling of this That's period. what it is. It's sentiment. And then people think yeah. it's uh, studying sentiment. Does it, is, is it sentimentality? Not at all. You know, there's two misconceptions that sentiment is somehow a sort of weakened understanding uh, when it's actually incredibly visceral and embodied. And the other one is the notion that, that aesthetics is cosmetic that it has to do with uh, taste, uh, that it's about beauty. And none of these things are really, um, I'm, I'm really not concerned with, with much of this at all. It's about the evolution of sentiment. And sentiment, I think, is what has evolved the most. There's a lot of things that we wish would have changed haven't. They've become entrenched and, and even worsened. But sentiment is definitely, um, if not evolving, it's uh, it's been interpolated. It's been addressed. It it it, it cannot be contained. And uh, just seeing at, uh, people operate on this level and interact on this level is really rich. And as far as I see it, it's been my best predictor. It's how people feel is going to traduce into a series of actual um, active preferences that. Uh, that eventually shape reality. So it's um, sentiment is really, really important. And I am talking to increasingly more people who are aware of this. I had a conversation yesterday with someone in tech, someone who's in the crypto sector, and he immediately launched out speaking about sentiment, about the sentimental value of things. That's another thing that we rescued with the with the with the GameStop thing. Is you know why. Uh, why GameStop? Why 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 block? why MNC? And it's because these uh, these are brands that have sentimental value. They're not, you know, inherently valuable. They don't have uh, the power and the glamour, but they do have the glamour of nostalgia, and that's a very powerful. And uh, these these throwbacks, they're just going to keep visiting us until we address them as such. 
So this discussion reminds me of a passage, one of the passages I highlighted, and this came from one of the earliest things, as far as I can tell, that you wrote kind of as the as the pandemic was unfolding. This was the post the postscript to the Peruvian exhibition catalog for the Venice Biennale. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that just regarding sentiment, um, you have this passage which really struck me, where you said, with only days in quarantine, our bodies have become attuned to rhythms that we didn't know we've had. We've lost our youth. We are, one and all, discovering a most intimate and cosmic strangeness amongst ourselves, as well as with, in the world, in manners exceedingly painful. The masks allow us to enact a ghoulish simulation of the airless parts of the disease. It's grotesque to wear them. These are masks of more or less divergent mimicry, the abject laugh, the cruelest theater, the Venetian revelers of carnival reassembled as plague gods, plague doctors. So I love that passage. Oh, I think thanks. It, you know, I it's it's really interesting to hear it, not just to <laughs> it's it's different. Yeah. Well, it's yeah. obviously. I mean, I'm, I I've recently been interested in revisiting the the sort of early moments. Yeah, me too. COVID. Me too. Um, so I, that that's part of why I, I went back to some of your earliest material. Yeah, this is what I'm calling up until May 25th. This is how I'm um, periodizing things from the start, uh, let's say March 11, which is the, the formal declaration of the pandemic by, uh, by the World Health Organization to May 25, which is when uh, George Floyd dies. I'm calling that interval aesthetic wave one. That's the first one. And it was extremely um, different from what we have now. And it was radically different from what we have now where it's been normalized. The pandemic has been either, you know, integrated to life in a way or or, or is being vehemently ignored in others. And uh, we just sort of settled into it. But there was a moment where the response was very, very passionate in the real sense of the word. Um, and you did have people, since we did not really know, uh, we had such a limited grasp of what it could be, what uh, how, 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 how aggressive COVID could be. Um, I think the first response was, uh, I've called it very psychedelic in the sense that it was very mind expanding. Um, there was definitely an uptick in generosity in reaching out to others in being service in um, in building small uh, hyper local communities the minute this, this this started I had friends in in Los Angeles where I was living at the time reach out to me and say you know if there's anything need, you you need we have a car we can drop it off and the solidarity just coalesced quickly and very effectively and then over time, that sort of uh, and across the board, this was this was rather generalized, and then eventually it started to dissipate after the shock. Um, uh, the shock did too, but I thought it was a really really interesting moment, in, and I think it was the most significant uh, shift. It was really us against the the, the bug, and uh, and I felt people taking that very mm -hmm. seriously. Yeah, yeah. For me, I mean, in a personal way my experience of that period was, was extremely positive, yeah. <laughs> which is strange, yeah. but I, I experienced it in a, an intensely positive way. Um, yeah. and, and that, that gradually shifted, but, um, it, mm -hmm. it felt like this, uh, 
it, it felt like this release from all of these different pressures of the world that it did um, kind of allowed for this this temporary it suspension. Felt, this temporary yeah. suspension. Yeah, it was it was a real epoche, mm-hmm. and you know, experienced on a, a on a level that that almost anybody could pick up. And of course, you had you had the denialists. There were a lot of people who. Um, those were also the days when I was being called uh, any number of unpleasant things by <laughs> um, by people who, who who didn't take it seriously. I was berated for, you know, for example, the, the on, on, on my birthday, I, I, I entered quarantine and I was being told, you know, what an idiot, what a hysteric and why are you not celebrating? And you're you're so you, now you're a shut in like all like all the other hysterics. And I'm like, yeah, no, I'm a shut in. <laughs> and um but yeah, and that was a very, uh, that was a long and rigorous um, lockdown. And, but yeah, I mean, we did experience it positively in the sense of it uh, canceling on any number of, of superficial commitments, emphasizing what was um, most evidently important and immediate. And, uh, and um, you know, it started, it started resolving with absolute clarity who your friends were and uh, there was a lot of positive insight and there were a lot of positive gains to be drawn from that period if you were willing to um, live through it and feel it and it was painful I uh, I have uh, it was those first weeks of shock at realizing how much things could potentially change for better and for worse uh, you know what a what a what a swerve this could represent that uh, I got my first gray hairs. I didn't have gray hairs, not to mention the amount of gray hair that I have now until then. And that happened in the first, that happened in about two weeks. It was incredibly fast. And I physically changed. I physically, um, I think I really hit middle age. I stopped being young (laughs) and I started being whatever it is I am today. Which is fine, you know. These are these are just processes, but it happened so neatly and so clearly. And aging is something that tends to, you know, happen over 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 a, um, an arc of time. And this just happened in 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 a couple of weeks. So it felt it was very <laughs> it was very alarming. And um, and we embrace it now. I've um, months. Uh, it hasn't it hasn't even been a year and it's insane to say it because it feels like so much more on the body and the mind but less than a year since i am i am much happier with who i am and where i am and but that has been extremely fast and it has come at an immense personal cost uh, i have lost all the ballast that i could in about 10 or 11 months and it's been brutal (laughs) so i'm at the point where i'm basically reconstructing my life but uh what i'm building on feels incredibly sore in the sense that i know i know who i'm doing it with and i know uh why i'm doing it and that is that is an immense gift that is an immense gift and it's something that i'm very happy to to share with others who are in the same boat and there's a there's a big number of us who feel you know we've taken a pummeling, but but we're grateful for it. It's it's made a lot of things very uh, very pellucid. This narrative of metamorphosis, yeah, which I which I completely relate to. I I mean because of you know what I was describing before that that sort of um, withdrawal 
from a great deal of the world, that kind of sus temporal suspension that occurred in that period for me yeah. felt like, you know, a kind of withdrawal into a cocoon from which I emerged somewhat different. Oh, um, yes. And, it, you know, it, it, it was really a, a time of, I think it was a time when you either, you either did that uh -huh. and, and that um, could turn this crisis into something like an experience of, of growth and, and transformation or, yeah. or you didn't. Or and, you didn't. And that was probably, you know, a, probably a worse outcome. <laughs> but and ultimately, um, you know, it, and those I don't, things have And I don't take themselves. credit for it. No, mm -hmm. no, no. Mm -hmm. No, you were either receptive to this and able. There's also a capacity thing. A lot of people who have not, you know, embraced a transformation do not have the capacity. And <laughs> in a very real philosophical sense, I mean, a lot of people who uh, got caught in the denial loops uh, did so because they had no no alternative. <laughs> mm -hmm. And you have to be extremely pliant, extremely willing to be um, to take the blows and to feel them in order to you know have this mutation happen. I think one of the jokes that some people have caught in the title Covidian aesthetics is that the word Ovidian is right there, and and that's on purpose. <laughs> Yes, um, yeah, yeah. Ovid has been really present in my mind, and a lot of us are becoming, and very actively so. And it's something you either embrace, or or even if it's happening to you and you're passive about it, um, others may see happening, but um, not all people do. So I think we have all been run through the grinder, but not everyone wants to admit it. <laughs> Because it hurts. It hurts immensely. Um, yeah, and, absolutely. you know, people have lost limbs and, 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 and lost mm -hmm. important parts of their uh, of their psychic selves. And it's um, it's heavy. It's heavy stuff. And there is a, an unwillingness to confront uh, what is sometimes a catastrophic transformation, which doesn't mean it's bad or good, but it can be. It can have that dimensionality to it. And you have to have the capacity to just accept that, that there may have been some catastrophic transformations on very intimate levels. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, so I'm, I'm glad you connected Covidian and Ovidian yeah. <laughs> um, because this, this motif of metamorphosis is, is perhaps one that might lead us into another theme, which is the, the hyperbaroque, um, another yeah. sort of topos that you're, <laughs> you're working on. And I mean, this, I, I previously characterized you as a hypnotist collector. I also would like to characterize you as a sort of guide through a labyrinth. Oh. And I think that, um, you know, that figure of the labyrinth. So you, you've written about uh, Jose Antonio Maraval's culture of the Baroque yes. as, as one of your sort of reference points. And mm -hmm. he, um, he discusses the, the sort of topos of the labyrinth yes. in, in Baroque culture as one of the, one of the most central ones. And although ironic to say central, right? Because, yeah, um, I know, I know, but, but it makes but, perfect um, sense. But um, so, you know, thinking about what we've just been discussing I think the experience has been that of being lost in a labyrinth, right? It's it's been one of constant twists and turns, and yeah. looking back and not being able to see what was there, yeah. um, and and thus of a kind of am, you know a kind of constantly revised amnesia. At least that <laughs> that that is what the the kind of 
you know, this experience of losing the thread of the narrative, right? That, yes. that there's some overall shared narrative that we're supposed to be following, but it seems as if the thread is constantly getting lost and we're veering off in different directions. Um, yeah. And so, you know, we need uh, some, we need um, other observers and sort of guides to come in and, you know, like Ariadne sort of um, help us navigate uh, our way through it. So I, I, I think of your project that way as well. It, it Just, is. I mean, and, um, the, and the value of this, of this collecting and this, um, this documenting as, as a, a sort of way of, of being able to see, sort of chart our path through the labyrinth. Yeah, um, yeah. Even if we don't know exactly where it's taking us. Yeah. Some thoughts I would like to add to that. I mean, there is the guiding element, which I, you know, it's the blind guiding the blind because I'm as blind as anyone else. But um, at least I am trying to take on that responsibility. It's, uh, it, it is that sort of ethical commitment. Somebody has to try <laughs> and I do think that there is an element of not only Ariadne, but also the role of the psychopomp, the guide of souls. And in a way, this has been a very fast and very long dark night of the soul for many people. And I'm just trying to um, take the first steps and hold hands and, and, you know, try not to fall through. The other thing is that labyrinths, um, as topoi, they come in many forms. And uh, a lot of them are procedural. They have a beginning, they have an end. And if you stick to a route, there is a method to the madness. And uh, and in that sense, the labyrinth is a choreography. And you, um, and you um, experience it. And then you have whatever this mess is where you think you've been going along a procedural labyrinth. You know, these are the rules of the game and this is the game board. And then you realize that your Ariadne's thread has been cut and you are in the middle of it. And like, oh, shit. <laughs> and you can't really go back, but there's prob probably too many ways of going forward. And so you start, you know, essaying some of the ways to go around it. Um, I, um, if I remember correctly, the way out of a unicursal labyrinth is you put your left hand on the left wall and keep going. Um, none of this works anymore or not in a, in a way that one can extrapolate to reaching the end. We don't know what the end is. We don't know if there is an end. Uh, we just know that from one moment to the other, we were caught in, in a completely different structure that was also structuring us. And so this is a new relationship that's developing with a new, um, a new, uh, a new topos. And uh, I said at some point that I really think that we are like the gastric uh, flora of whatever this entity is. We are a part of it. We are indissociable from it. It needs us to continue to perpetuate itself. But it's also distinct. It's also different. It's also uh, in some ways more and in some ways less. And the other thing I'd like to add to this is that the introduction of different point of views is interesting here because... Um, better or worse insofar as we can see them as such. There is a, a, a bug's eye view. Uh, there is a, a human perspective. There is the perspective of different vested interests in, in, in at work. And so all of these are colliding in this space and interacting and giving rise to new topographies within it. So I'm trying to see what's going on with that. 
Absolutely. And I think um, this sort of leads, as I said, the, the topos of the labyrinth leads us into the the hyperbaroque, yeah. which, you know, if we think of the culture instinct as a kind of um, a, a kind of inductive, you know, as we said, as I said, zero degree empiricism. Yeah. The hyperbaroque is sort of a conceptualizing project. Oh, yeah. Um, that that uh, that provides a kind of uh, a broader conceptual lens through which to to begin to view and 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 also think these phenomena. So yeah. one thing I think is, I, you know, because I, I studied uh, comparative literature in graduate school, <laughs> and um, you know, became conscious of the centrality of the Baroque, not just to, I mean, particularly Spanish and um, Latin American culture, but also to to some extent um, other, you know, Italian and German culture. Um, oh yeah, and uh, and I I became actually and have been ever since acutely conscious of the the deficit of of knowledge or awareness of the Baroque in Anglophone culture that it it simply doesn't exist as I a term. I find that absolutely bizarre and fascinating because it, the English Baroque is one of the most interesting. <laughs> yeah, well, it's like it it exists as a term, but it it means. I mean, I, I think it often exists aesthetically almost as a, a sort of derogatory term, right? It's, yeah. it's used to describe and, and the, the wrong, you know, this art that's sort of needlessly elaborate or um, needlessly yeah. decorative or something. Um, so that there's not a positive appreciation of it as a, a period, you know, as Maraval describes it, like a, a, a period in its own right. Um, indeed, that has indeed. This, and not that only has that, this, you know, mm-hmm. we have an intelligentsia that will... Um, ground everything in the enlightenment and i and then you have another segment that goes all the way to the renaissance and i do think of the baroque as the sort of intermediate chapter between them and the baroque is fundamentally on every level it is about mechanisms of power and control and it is about the problematization and the presentation and representation of 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 these uh, systems of operation. It's basically coding. And in that sense, we still operate with these Baroque codes, which are Baroque for a reason. They're not necessarily meant to be immediately intelligible, but they're also, again, codified. They're, pro- they're protocols. And I think we are reproducing some of these schema uh, today and some of it is, you know, inherited and 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 forgotten about, and so it's overlooked. And some of it is uh, is is reactivating. So I really think it's 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 critical that we have a grasp of what the Baroque moment is, what Baroque sensibilities are, um, what the Baroque as an instrument of 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 the state as a state aesthetic, as a national aesthetic, as a um, as a mythological foundry can be, and uh, I mean that's my own my own interest, and I see how uh, profoundly the Baroque has penetrated. And at the same time, you have this the, this huge aesthetic division between you know uh, the the Catholic imagination and the Protestant imagination, and it is at the heart of this uh, Anglo blind spot that you mentioned. Yeah, exactly, and I, I you know I do. I think of it as uh, the the sort of um, the erasure of the Baroque in mm-hmm. Anglo, you know, as a as a cultural, a significant yeah. cultural epoch in its own right. Does I think have to do with the 
the way that, yeah, exactly. The, I mean, for one thing, the, the role of Protestantism. For another thing, you know, the, the particular form that the Enlightenment took in um, the Anglophone world. Indeed. Which I think involves a, a sort of repudia- a repudiation and, and stigmatization of much of what was associated with that. Of course. But, but, you know, at some, in some ways you also can't really think of the Enlightenment without the Baroque. Um, they're incredibly closely affiliated uh-huh. in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, so I think there, there's just a missing, uh, a, re- a sort of missing space in the, this sort of historiot the standard historiography, yeah. sort of it's, intellectual it's a, it's and aesthetic. It's a negative space with, with all of, mm-hmm. with, with, with all that means. But that's, <laughs> that, that's pretty rich and we should exploit it. So it's definitely and, um, latently there, and uh, mm-hmm. and it's having all of these, you know, epigenetic stirrings. And I think that part of the of that divorce between Catholic and the Protestant, it comes down to the Protestants saying, "Okay, this is we we are an ethic," and the other party saying, "No, we are an aesthetic." And that's I think that's a fundamental rift that is that is too frequently forgotten, and that's where it happens. Yeah, and I I would also attribute a great deal of the the sort of shallowness and confusion of a lot of discussions about postmodernism and postmodernity. Oh yeah, I would actually attribute to a to a lack of appreciation of of the way that much of what much of what has been placed under that heading is a kind of uh, revival or return or or sort of revenant baroque. Oh, absolutely. Um, Absolutely. So, and and I think the fact that we don't we you know we're blind to the ways that it's already in the kind of genetic code of the culture. Yeah, means that when we see it, we have to come up with these these other ways of describing it, which often end up not yeah. not capturing a great deal of what's there. Indeed, indeed. No, I agree completely. Um. So one interesting. Uh, topos that Maraval also discusses is that of the madness of the world, ah. <laughs> um, right? And he, yes. I'm actually going to quote a little bit from him. Please um, do. So he's he's you know one of the the major arguments of the book is that this is a a period defined by crisis, right? Oh yeah. So um, and we could go into the reasons for that crisis. I mean, it did involve plagues among other things. Uh-huh, um, uh-huh. <laughs> But um, as in our current situation, you know, other conditions kind of um, enabled those plagues and prepared the way for them. They were more of a symptom than a, than a cause of crisis. Of um, but in any case, this passage is kind of a, a, a good um, summary of this uh, notion of the madness of the world as it was understood then. So he says, but in the 17th century crisis, this view... Um, of the madness of the world became widespread in the face of the abnormality from the traditional point of view of so many events taking place. Madness is universal, declared M. Regnier. Quevedo's criticism did not concern a perennial and natural condition of the world as might be offered in a Bosch painting, but the condition that he was witnessing, the deliriums of a world that today appears to be raving. Similarly, Saavedra Fajardo denounced the madnesses of Europe. In the theater, the one who unveiled things as they showed themselves in their social and moral confusion was the comedian, repeatedly presented as the figure of the madman. What madman will surpass this madman, pondered Lope about one of them. We suspect that it was no less possible to refer to this aspect of the worldview, the repulsive practice of using buffoons. (laughs) 
I, I could go on, but I think we, I, I'll go on a little bit more. Whatever <laughs> may have been the echo of that, that the use of buffoon still retained from classic antecedent, as in the way we find it mentioned. Yeah. Oh, in yeah, yeah. Seneca's dialogue, De Constantia Sapientis, the 17th century <laughs> taste for buffoons stemmed from the perception that they were comic evidence for the world's disharmony and senselessness. Uh-huh. Saavedra Fajardo told us that madmen are held to be mistakes of nature. This mode of paying attention to the natural rarities was derived from the Renaissance. But whereas the Renaissance individuals had sought such rarities by investigating the exotic, the Baroque already revealed its divergence. This theme was doubtless inscribed within the limits of the madness of the world topos and in the topos of remedies for melancholy caused by madness. A melancholy so pronounced in the Spanish kings because of the disasters they constantly underwent. So yeah. it, it goes on from there, but that gives people yeah, a flavor. Yeah, yeah. It's, such, so, it's such beautiful <laughs> reading, isn't it? It's just so it is, it is. rich with information. It's beautiful. And I, I think a lot about, about the buffoons, uh, the, 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 the court jesters. It's very interesting that, you know, he typifies them as repulsive. Uh, at the same time, these were... Um, they served parasiastic functions. The, the the buffoon could say things and get away with saying things uh, to power that no one else could, because there was a sense of you know diminished responsibility. This is this is a class, and so uh, this repulsive figure is 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 also has this sacrality to it. You don't, uh, um, and it's it's something that. Shakespeare captured beautifully in all of his gestures, and most especially in in Lear's Fool, which is the companion to madness and the companion to kingly decline. It's it's uh, yeah, that's my favorite of his fools. <laughs> and I mean, probably the most obvious direction to take this in would be I I wrote uh, about uh, around the time of you know the end of the Trump presidency. I wrote <sighs> briefly about Trump and the carnivalesque. Um, yes. So Trump as the kind of fool king figure, and yes. so so if we have this this buffoon figure at the center of of public life, indeed. Um, that what that does to well, and and so it, it really does generate this this baroque situation, right? Where where another topos that is discussed in the book is the world turned upside down, right? Um, so, so, so where we have the, the fool actually, you know, who might be the, the kind of counter king or the, the yeah. sort of anti-king who stand, is actually elevated to that position. Um, but it, you think know, that's about the, all of the, all of the, the resonances that Trump has with us. I mean, he is the, the, the counter king. He is an anti-pope. He is, he, he, he's a, he's a, um, he's a, um, he's a profane clown, <laughs> but with sacred characteristics. So there's a lot going on in Trump as a figure, and I don't think we have even started to address him in his multifarious. It's uh, absolutely it's, it's too soon. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But there is there are intimations of this level of analysis that you're bringing uh, in my guest column number three by uh, uh, angelicism, he already, he or she, because I don't know, makes, uh, makes a comparison between, um, Trump as, you know, counter king and, and, and unholy fool and, uh, Christ as criminal via Simon Wheel. And it's very, very interesting. You have these two provocateurs who are, um, not conducting themselves as they should. And yet in so doing, they are laying bare, um, any manner of dysfunctions in the in the underpinnings of reality. 
the critical play about this, of course, and it's never read as more contemporary, is La Vida es Sueño. Uh, which uh, I don't know if the translation to English is uh, "Life is a Dream." I suppose. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I have it around. It I actually, to... I actually know the one of the translators. Oh, <laughs> interesting! Well, what um, an absolute treasure to have been able to translate that. Mm. It's, uh, but really, it is it is a it is an essay. It is a dramatization of hyperreality. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. No. It's. I mean, this is a play that I'm constantly. You know, it's it's tragic how how little known it is in the anglophone world. In fact, so I um, you know, I as I explained, I, I became very in, interested in the Baroque. So I I actually wrote a paper. I for a while I considered sort of making that my academic specialization. Yeah, and I I wrote a paper about Spanish and German Baroque drama. Um, which uh-huh. of course German Baroque drama you have the the very dense but but quite wonderful Benjamin book about Walter Benjamin book about it. Um, And, but, you know, there's been relatively little um, sort of comparative research into those two uh, more or less simultaneous moments, which, which were really all part of the same sort of larger Habsburg. Uh, Exactly. Um, Exactly. In any case, the, the, yeah, La Vida Sueño, uh, Life is a Dream for, those who are unfamiliar is highly recommended. The I believe the edition that that my acquaintance translated is the Penguin Classics. Um, so people should definitely check that out if they want to just get an immediate um, primer in the Baroque in the form of and a, a primary I think it's, source. You know, if if I had to, I mentioned Brecht at some point, but if I had to stage a play immediately, and uh, I say so because I can see that there are some theaters reopening here in San Francisco. If I had the chance to stage a play right now, it would be that one. Uh, because Absolutely. I cannot think of a more contemporary one. Yeah, it's, and, it's, I mean, and this I would say is, that you know, this is, if you read um, the great Baroque work of, of 17th century Spain, the which I would say is, immensely and unjustly neglected other than perhaps Don Quixote in the Anglophone world. Um, it is spectacular in its contemporary contemporaneity. It's um, incredibly resonant. Yeah. So that's, so yeah, just, you have uh, all of these tropes that are reappearing, the carnivalesque and the world mm-hmm. upside down and uh, what I've called, uh, and this is of course, uh, more romantic, if, if, if you so will it. This is more Nietzschean, but the, this is a moment where a whole number of flips of transvaluations have taken place in, mm-hmm. in, in values, of course. And, and you're seeing that, that has definitely accelerated. And uh, transvaluation comes hand in hand with world upside down. Uh, we prize things that we didn't prize before. We deprecate mm-hmm. things that we used to honor. And it's definite. Yeah. And we're testing the limits of that. How far can we move in each of these directions before we run into adversaries or walls or, or cancellation? <laughs> so there's a lot of probing. There's a lot of boundary work that's happening right now. And um by the time we more or less exit the disease, and that is going to be very conditional, and I think we still have a few years ahead of that working itself out because um, it's not going to be an even process, and um, and there will still be sufficient uh, porousness for reinfections to happen over time. This is going to be our companion for a while. Um, the 
the boundaries, the social boundaries that we're setting uh, and that are emerging are going to be quite different from what we went in. This sort of brings me to another um, hyperbore. I mean, returning actually to the the buffoons and the madness of the world. Yes. Um, it's interesting. So first of all, the the figure of um, clown world is to me sort of the the contemporary equivalence, right? Just the clown emoji. It is. Um, it is. Is, <laughs> is the sort of you know one of these baroque signifiers that floats around, and I mean, it did actually turn up years before any of this, right? But I, I feel that it's sort of become more widespread. In its uh, we all understand what clown mm-hmm. world is. I mean, I think yeah. you can take it to the normies and they will immediately say, oh yeah, clown world. I mean, it sounds familiar. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think yeah. I can see it. And, you know, you, you even have, you know, the whole Joker phenomenon, which- Well, this is exactly this. what I was going to get to. <laughs> yeah. Joker has become more credible. And the interesting thing about the Joker mythos, if you go back, you know, to- uh, to the comics is uh, that Joker's uh, defect, so to speak, is at some point he's supposed to be afflicted with hyperlucidity. This is the guy that sees it as it is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And this, so yeah, I was via Clown World going to get to um, <laughs> this moment that we entered, you know, the Covidian world um, was was preceded by this interesting um, and I think we'll get into panic a little bit later, yeah. but the, the pan, the Joker panic, right? Because in, <laughs> um, in late, uh, 2019, uh, if I'm not, if I'm not mistaken, Joker came out in what late in November, December, 2019. Yeah. And, and so it was preceded by this immense panic that was surrounding these kinds of, I mean, <laughs> these online spaces that I think we could associate with a lot of the the themes I think we'll get to in a minute um having to do with the with pan and the satyr and the but also the scapegoat um Uh these kind of um these marginal men who are you know these these sort of um subjects of panic for the past several years and so anyway joker um comes about as a cultural phenomenon as this, um, you know, it's a, it's a film that is about, and, you know, in this way it connects to it, precisely to the passage I was reading a little while ago, because it is about crisis, right? It's, it's about, Absolutely. It's, it's harking back to the 70s, cri- you know, moment of crisis, yeah. which is interesting because it, um, I think in that way is quite, you know, hyperstitional or, or forward-looking in, in anticipating um, the the profound sense of crisis that that had not quite yet evolved. I mean, there there had been a sense of crisis on the political level, but I, I think that the sense of a, a society whose fabric was was coming apart at the seams really didn't become a sort of um, intuitive part of daily life until several months after Joker came out. So in any yeah. case, um, it it anticipated that moment, um, did so in a way that <laughs> that sort of <laughs> weaponize the the clown world meme as a, a sort of signifier of of rebellion and did so in a way that on one hand was was superficially very scary to people but on the other hand proved far less subversive shall we say in practice than than it was originally imagined to be by some observers. So it's interesting to me that that preceded that precise, you know, that was the, the kind of last hurrah of, 
of mm-hmm. pre-Covidian aesthetics, perhaps. So yeah. it's an interesting kind of prologue to I our, think it's a wonderful prologue, and it's a prologue with a prologue because this is a character that had, you know, how many film treatments has Joker received since since the first um, Tim Burton Batman? And it's an interesting evolution, and it's fast for for a a a pop character. It's really interesting how that's you know each let's say each um, each era has its peculiar Joker, and and ours is uh, the Joaquin Phoenix one, who is yes. mm-hmm. you know he ties in much more closely to clown world as we as we live it to um, the incel conversation to uh, the return of the repressed and the depressed both. This is a very um, it's a very melancholy Joker. And in that sense, he's also very Baroque because the Heath Ledger Joker is nihilistic. And in that sense, he is um, he's already sublimated and instantly iconic by virtue of that, you know, removal from worldly concern. But the Phoenix Joker and actually I just realized that the Phoenix Joker um uh, the rebirth, the reborn Joker is 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 extremely mundane. He is of the world. Yes, he and I, you know you bring up the the way that he what he offered the first popular dramatization of of something like the the sort of incel myth, and he did yeah. so again in a, in a very proleptic way because he did so right before, as many commentaries observed. Months later, you know, we sort of all became incels in a sense, um, <laughs> right? We all became these kind of shut-ins yes. to our screens. Um, and, you know, the, the sort of neat, the figure of the neat or yes. or similar became the sort of universal subject. So in that Indeed. sense, Joker, um, you know, was a was a prophetic figure just of the, the subjectivity that evolved in the in the subsequent months. Yeah, yeah. I think it was a it was a more resonant movie than it was expected to be, but for different reasons, for much uh, for much more touching reasons as well. And uh, and I was just discussing this a few days ago with someone, but uh, there was also um, I was you know caught in a, <laughs> living in a hotel room for for a couple of weeks, and uh, and there was access to television there, which I hadn't seen in ages, and so. I just, you know, ran through old, some old um, 90s show. And you realize that there was a turning point, a, a major turning point in what youth culture was and where it was going um, before and after Columbine. It's dramatic. It's, it's, it's astonishing. Uh, I believe I, I, I was watching some, uh, uh, some reissuing of uh, Saved by the Bell. And uh, you know this show was so naive and so innocent and and it is absolutely inconceivable that these school mechanics that these um, youth relations would take place in a school today. Just the the politics have changed, the incentives have changed, and there is a complete loss of innocence after Columbine. And uh, we've been carrying with that as well, and it has clearly not been integrated, and it keeps spiking and it keeps looping and there is something very true about what you mentioned about this you know us all becoming shut-ins and incels and um having to um 
in, in some cases develop a sort of sympathy for uh, young men who are perceived as devils and uh, when they're not. Uh, and um, they're just, you know, young men who have been, um, I, I don't think it's, it's there, there's ever been a worse, uh, a worse time in, in, in modernity to, to, be a, to be a young man. And um, there is an impulse. I hear a, a lot of um, calls to a new monasticism. Oh, wouldn't it be good to open new monasteries? Oh, wouldn't it be nice to be monk? And uh, think of all that provides you. That provides you a social safety net. That provides you a society. That provides you a sense of community. And it provides you order. It provides you an organized uh, workday. And these are all... Uh, deep psychic human necessities that are being completely cast aside and unattended and dismissed and and uh, mocked. And I um, I'm actually very, very sympathetic to to what it must be like and feel like at this point. And uh, and in a way we have all been immersed in this sort of low future resolution and uh, and it's interesting. It's interesting to to try to um, put ourselves in those shoes. I am not fond of, of empathy. I am not an empathic person, but I do think that there is, um, there is great value in, in stepping into other shoes, not becoming the other person, but, but exploring the other person's space and interacting with a space different than ours, especially if it is massified and it is. Uh, so it's, 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 not, it's not just a person. You're speaking to this whole in-cell complex that is shaping, also shaping reality. And that, for example, has this exuberant um, um, spin-off in, the, in, in what happened with GameStop. That is, they call themselves autists, they call themselves retards, and yet they have just brought Wall Street to Kiel. And that is that's joker theatrics and and it's a very aesthetic way that they've gone about it and it's very um it's it's very gorilla and at the very at the very same time it's, it's also it has these very martial um characteristics of holding the line that's uh that's deep maginot so yeah it, it just impinges on so many uh, masculine tropes and and heroic tropes that just need attending and and sublimating. I find this um, the the you know we we've come to the point where now there is a male question, uh, the masculine question, and uh, and it's been treated as it's been treated as such and is generating these uh, these spaces for aggressive discrimination and uh, demonization that. Uh, they're 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 starting to reshape uh, to reshape society in significant and 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 I think uh, largely detrimental ways. Young men have um, uh, young men have traditionally served uh, energizing um, exploratory purposes, and right now all of that is 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 boxed in and and contained and repressed. And I don't see that being tenable, not in the least. Yeah, and this. I, I think can also tie us back to um, to the Baroque, where yeah. interestingly you did have um, the you had you had sort of other worlds as an outlet, right? You you could you could sort of um, you know the, the untenability of life as a young man was you know propelling uh, young men in Spain to the New World, right? Indeed, for one thing. <laughs> 
And so um, that, and, and not only, right, you had um, comparable phenomena elsewhere, but, um, you know, that, that was definitely one dimension of the, the crisis. So I, but I was interested in, because um, we're starting to touch on it, you know, some of your early COVID-related writings, um, one of them uh, addressed the tragic and the panic. Indeed, yeah. And um, this, you know, I think we can connect to the panic in the sense of pan, right? Yeah. Um, and obviously we can, we can connect that to Joker, right? Yeah as the the sort of um the cause of panic um of this kind of contagious um this kind of contagious uh, hysteria or something yeah. similar that that sort of cascades across the culture so um this again topos on one hand of of the panic and on the other hand of the tragic so mm-hmm. how would you i mean how what brought those to your attention as sort of um frames for this moment and and how would you sort of differentiate between but also relate them yeah uh i i if i if i remember correctly i mentioned the tragic as being more politan uh more related to uh, urbanity and, and and lack thereof and so it is built around uh exclusion it is uh, and uh, whereas panic has more to do with the aesthetics of invasion, of violation, of possession and trespassing. Uh, in that sense, the, um, um, the panic is, uh, is more, um, it operates more on the level of culture and the tragic is a measure of civilization. So in a way they are, uh, they play off each other dialectically, but they're also very distinct. And I think that another interesting aspect is that if you um, if you um, study uh, Dionysian mythos, you will realize that uh, this is this is a god that comes in from the east. He is deeply foreign to uh, <laughs> to our uh, to our Greek roots. He is an invader of sorts, and he upsets the status quo, and he disturbs. Um, perception and behavior. And uh, in a way, COVID is serving a very Dionysian function. So I wrote uh, sometime around, must have been, must have been June, about plague and sacrifice. Yes. And obviously, the the long historical relationship between the two, that (laughs) in the, the sense of the tragic that you were just describing, um, that that there's a, a plague. We, we can think of Oedipus as probably the clearest example, mm. right? That there's a plague and then there's someone who must ultimately be purged in order to lift oh, yeah. the plague, right? Uh-huh. And if the the reading that uh, that I borrow from, of, of the Oedipus myth that I borrow from René Girard is, is correct, then the, the, the purpose of the Oedipus myth is to retroactively assign blame to Oedipus by uh-huh. construing him as this, this monster and, and bringer of misfortune Indeed. who, who, um, who, you know, within the myth is, is re- represented as, as fully guilty. Uh-huh. Um, but if we, if we relate it to, you know, more recent um items in the historical record where we have observate, you know, direct observations of witch persecutions that function in precisely the same way, right? Where 
a single member of a community is singled out as the the cause of misfortune yes. and is then sacrificed or uh, banished, expelled. So th- this was sort of my um, and and this you know the Dionysian would be part of this, right? Because yes. um, the the Dionysian, well, you know, we could go into other, we could go into you know the Bacchae, right? Yes. So the the Dionysian contagion, right, is it is um, in Girard's analysis, the plague and the sort of social contagion of, of societal breakdown and collapse are essentially blurred in myth, right? That they're not, yeah. they're not represented as distinct. They happen, mm-hmm. um, they happen, you know, they're, they're driven by the same fundamental mm-hmm. causal principle. And that causal principle is the, the Dionysian, right? Mm-hmm. Then the, so then the the ultimate um, resolution of this process has to be the the kind of concentration of the contagion into a single figure who is then expelled, you know, outside the city walls. Yeah. Um, so, you know, to me, this and, and I think we we to some extent converged um, in similar thinking around this because it was it, it was just so clear to anyone who who thinks in these terms, what was happening in those early months. Um, so I'm curious what your take is on the shift from phase one to phase two, as you describe them. Oh, because to uh, me, that, that there, to there was this sacrificial <laughs> moment because, you know, the, what happened, well, the, what was the George Floyd moment? Well, essentially it, it was, uh, it was the pivotal moment, right. As yes. you, as you're describing it. And to my mind, it was, it, it essentially functioned as a, a sort of sacrificial purgation that, that allowed was. for a, yes. <laughs> it was a release in that sense, but it was also a, um, ah, let me find the right word. It was also a deflection. It was also a deflection because when you have um, an afflicted state, an afflicted country with um there is a symmetry between the king and uh, you know kingship is at its at its roots it is a sacrificial investiture if you are king you must in a way be ready to be sacrificed and replaced and you will be given kingly treatment until it's your turn to go <laughs> that's basically exactly. you know this is um this is Fraser. This is uh, you go all the way back to the Golden Boot, and it's uh, so the conditions uh, of kingship are are extremely unnerving and, and demanding, and um, and I think in that sense the the the, the sacrifice of uh, of George Floyd is is not proportionate to he first of all he is not in any way responsible for the plague he was carrying uh like so many uh, and um so i don't think you know there was a deflection that helped sort of um reduce the the sense of uh, of shock and of foreignness to something that could be um articulated in a in a more um local um political um customary way so we make it about we make it about us and 
um, and our not understanding ourselves. And we sort of bring the problem back home, but we do not address the extreme otherness of the bug. It, I, I think that level of, of alienness is extremely disconcerting. And in a way, it just blows up the uh, the Ozymandias theory from Watchmen, where, you know, let's unify all people by bringing in this giant alien squid and throwing it on New York. And that will, that should stir, you know, um, finally, you know, cohesion. Um, but it's it's the opposite. We, the, the giant squid didn't bring us together. If anything, it pulled us further apart because we just couldn't, we couldn't cope with the magnitude and, and, the, and the foreignness of it. <laughs> the uh it, yeah. it defies it defies you know epistemic comprehension the squid is too yeah. much <laughs> so here was what i wrote regarding that that moment um after again setting up this theme of sacrifice as as the the sort of purgative cure for the plague that would in various ways surfaced in the in the month the early months of covid yeah. So I, I then said the sacrificial theme cropped up again when just as the virus and its attendant conflicts reached their peak, attention, attention shifted abruptly to the death of George Floyd. In mm-hmm. some respects, the response to his death echoed the violent remedies to plagues found in myth and legend. The world was instantaneously transfixed by the spectacle of a man's killing, and as if by magic, the pandemic receded into the background. Multitudes ignored public health restrictions and flooded into the streets. We might even view the looting and arson that followed as a continuation of the sacrificial moment, a burnt offering consummating the carnivalesque suspension of norms. Certainly. Floyd's death, Certainly. like ancient sacrifices, enabled not the overcoming of the plague itself, but a redire- redirection of collective attention away from some of its effects. Curiously, mm-hmm. it achieved this because of the anti-sacrificial bias of our culture. <laughs> Girard argued that social conflicts could only be resolved through sacrifice if everyone accepted the victim's guilt which allowed them to transfer responsibility for communal ills onto the scapegoat. Conversely, most everyone accepted Floyd's blamelessness. What brought to get yeah. people together was outrage at an unjust killing, not celebration of a just one. But if the potency of sacrifice depends on the public accepting it as just, it cannot generate enduring consensus in a world where sacrifice is regarded with suspicion. After the brief moment of unity that followed Floyd's death, divisions have reemerged stronger than ever. If anything, the protests have permitted a reset to normal variants of partisan antagonism. So that's that was sort of where I was back in. Yeah, yeah. And there's not only that; it's not only the multitudes who uh, who flew in the face of you know public health recommendations. It's the expert, and that is, I think, the most sensitive piece to to discuss because you realize that it's uh, it's ultimately there is a complete subordination to narrative desires. And, and it, that's and it did, you know, yeah. this, <laughs> absolutely. And it did, um, you know, in a sense that the sort of racism is the real pandemic meme. I mean, mm-hmm. part of what that did, I would say is, again, um, by creating an association between a moral fault and a sort of purely biological yeah. um, problem, it it really reinstated, again, this, this association of plague. With, I mean, think of Oedipus, right? Um, so the, the problem with Oedipus is he has violated all of the moral norms of the community and thus brought the plague upon it, right? Uh-huh. And so the, 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 the sort of pivot to the racism as the real pandemic was a kind of ad hoc myth-making, right? That, that um, attempted to um, 
relegate the biological to the moral and in that sense allow us to I would say fall back into pre-existing narratives um, political narratives that we're more comfortable with yeah we have the language for them and uh, we we know the arguments and again it brings it to a level that we can that we feel how we can manipulate uh, that we have more control over but if you if if you think about it I mean think about the the funeral pageantry uh, around the George Floyd death. That is the pageantry afforded to, you know, military here, example, in it. This is, it's, uh, it is the, even the triumphal and, and, and the, and the memorial and, uh, and the eternal flame. It's, um, it was operating on these very, very deep, uh, symbolic levels that did not necessarily correspond to the reality of the subject, but they did correspond to the reality of the need. Absolutely. And I think this brings us to another of these sort of mythical themes that, that you've touched upon, which would be pharmacos, pharmacon. Mm. Um, so obviously we can think here of, of the, scape, the function of the scapegoat in ancient mm-hmm. Greece, but then the way that, and again, this, this is precisely the, the, the conflation of the social, the moral, and the, the, the biological, um, mm. where the the cure you know far obviously we 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 know that ph- um pharmaca is the root of our vocabulary for you know medical cures um uh-huh. <laughs> so but it is it is both um it is it is one of these words that that means one thing and it's opposite which yeah. you know Jacques Derrida had a lot of fun with yeah. um and it also so it, it it means um poison it means remedy and it also means scapegoat right Indeed. So, um, so it's you know, in some ways, perhaps a term that that sums up almost everything we've we've talked about so far. It's it's deliciously dense, and uh, oh wow, we could do another podcast just on Pharmacon. And it's you know, when is and I I, I thought about this, but I haven't I haven't really written about it yet. When does the multidimensionality of the pharmacon enter the English language. And again, it is it is during the English Baroque, as with Shakespeare, it's on Romeo mm. and Julia. Uh, yeah. And uh, it is, you know, um, the that which can cure but can kill. And it is about dosing. And it is about uh, the right quantities to produce the desired effects. And you realize that we're already talking again about theater and about control and about uh, the power of dosification. How much am I going to inject into the system to produce the desired effect? And, uh, and, and so, yeah, it's, it's a theatrical device, deeply, in the deep sense. And of all the arts, I think that the one that we need to rediscover is, is theater. Because theater is the atavistic art form in this sense. It is... It is um, it is the antiquarian and it is the avant-garde. It's always at those two cutting edges and it, and it reconciles them and it helps them converse. So yeah, I've, uh, I've become, uh, I've always been a theater enthusiast and, uh, but, and, and, you know, that, that prolongs itself. That goes into, that goes into, into film and that goes into opera. I don't know if you know, um, this book about scapegoats um, written by Alexander Kluge, where, where he, um, 
where he plays out all of his historical examples, many of which have to do with, uh, with, with Jewish persecution uh, against the backdrop of the history of opera from the very earliest. And again, this is a late Renaissance, early Baroque phenomenon that you know continues until this day. And it is again about representing the drama of uh, mythic drama in, in its deepest sense. Opera, opera carries that. And um, it is a laboratory for that. And um, it's very interesting what Kluge does with that. And this is a book that uh, a lot of people don't read. And of course, um, the romantic connotation of opera is as Gesamtkunst's work is a total work of art. And that means that there is a blurring with reality. It starts there. And ultimately, life should be opera and opera should be life. And um, there is this ambition to interpenetrate each other's tissues and to keep slippery boundaries between the two. And, um, and I find that very, very provocative. Um, these are the sort of the means of projection that we continue to articulate. And not all theater is, you know, has this, um, this Brechtian distance. A lot of it is, if there was one thing that caught my eye during, during a theater, and that suffered, of course, it just completely disappeared with COVID. But what was happening was that um, theater was making a fully immersive comeback. I don't know if you're aware of this um, this reversioning, uh, this immersive reversioning of Macbeth called Sleep yes. No More. Mm-hmm. That was uh, that was a complete and understandable success. Uh, and it involved basically being in the story, uh, participating in the action of a story that we are furthermore familiar with. And in a way, there is this madness of repetition of, <laughs> of Macbeth going through the motions over and over again, but you can already participate in that narrative. And there is something really powerful in immersive theater, which I was um, considering writing about as the most successful architectural experiment taking place uh, um, pre-COVID, because buildings no longer uh, provide that to that level. The theater was going there, and um, and we're there. We're living inside of the theater. We are uh, the theater is living in us. We are reenacting all of these uh, topoi and uh, at different scales. The, the 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 variegation and scales in this whole event has been extraordinary. When you were speaking about George Floyd and you said, you know, there was this whole narrative of the pandemic within the pandemic, that is <laughs> that is a theatrical device. Again, it is a play within a play. And it is also uh, a sort of mathematization of the, of, of, the, of the event space because it's fractals, pandemic within the pandemic within the And it goes on. It's pandemics all the way down. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, this also leads us back to that that passage you wrote early on about the sort of um, the theater of masks, yeah. right? Um, which, you know, is, it, it rings very true to me today. I, I find it, you know, being in New York, mm-hmm. um, it, it varies by neighborhood and by area. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, in some areas it really does. I, I think many people walk around in, in a slight state of fear. I, I would include myself in this, that, yeah. you know, if you're, if you're caught without the mask, 
you will you will somehow become the you you know you will become the um the source of a panic that might lead you know you you sort of have nightmares of being chased um, the pariah by a mob who you know because you're not wearing a mask sees you as this vector of contagion who must be purged and, and vice expelled. versa that's the interesting mm. thing is the reversibility of this i have a couple of friends who were in orange county a couple of weeks ago and they were booed because they were the only people yeah. wearing masks right 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 <laughs> exactly i mean yeah and i i think um right it's it's fascinating you know and again it 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 is partly about how this theater this sort of theater of public spaces and street theater has partly just um extended the the domain of struggle of the sort of pre-existing polarized culture war right and given it these new um these new props which are yes. which are notable in the in the way that they they theatricalize it right um uh-huh that that you know it might have been before that you would have a provocative bumper sticker or something and then <laughs> and then someone would someone would uh, deliberately um you know sideswipe your car or something to whereas now all you know just the the binary um mask no mask right <laughs> is is this um is this remarkable kind of um, evolution of of sort of um, our participation in this this theatrical acting out of, of these yeah. sort of ideological fault lines. Yeah, and masks like uh, and like uh, <laughs> like the prosopon and, and the pharmacos, uh, they uh, masking can serve both both purposes. Masks can be used to um, to conceal or to reveal, or both, depending on how you deploy them. So they are, you know, these are uh, masks are a sort of communication technology, and uh, they're they're idiomatic, and and we're definitely communicating through them, and and so that that also increases the perception that there is an audience, and that you are uh, there is a level of performing for um, those who have eyes, those who can hear. Um, there is uh, a sort of Masonic handshake quality, you know, other people with masks or other people without them. Uh, this is my tribe. But all of this operates on, it's been um, presented as political, but I think that is, um, that is already mediatized. Both sides uh, are expressing existential concerns about my personal safety, or uh, the integrity of my uh, my freedoms and my my liberties, and uh, those are those are really really existential. And again, it has to do with this new boundary setting and boundary testing, and about what people are willing to tolerate and for how long. And uh, some of these uh, collisions have, uh, I think, uh, expiration dates. We're just waiting for. I think it's amazing that things have not exploded in more truculent ways this far. Truly amazing. <laughs> I, I continue to surprise myself. At the same time, the conditions of reemergence post-pandemic, I think, are going to be more unequal, um, more stacked against and for uh, different parties. And, um, and it may happen, uh, the terror, <laughs> It may happen after the pandemic, but it will have been um, installed perhaps during the pandemic. And this is something that sooner or later, it will find the channels to express itself. 
and they may be surprising. They may be completely different from what we were expecting. If uh, if the George Floyd event catalyzed a um, a sort of release, uh, a mass release of tension, and in a way it did, it was um, that's been bottled up again, and we have cities and we have countries that have gone into second and third lockdowns. And this continues to add up and um, the the matters of substance are not being addressed. And so eventually all of these chickens are going to come home to roost with or without them. So the vaccine is not the cure. It is not the pharmacos that uh, we have been promised. The pharmacos will have to be much more symbolically satisfying. I think that's a very good place to leave off. Um, yeah. <laughs> And, you know, I, I, I recommend that everybody continue to follow Monica's work at Covidian Aesthetics Substack and at Lapsus Lima and follow her on Twitter at, at Lapsus Lima. And uh, she will continue to be our, our guide through this never-ending labyrinth. So thanks so much for, for talking to me. Thank you so much for having me, Jeff. And, uh, and really, it's been, it's been lovely. It's the first time I record a podcast and it's, it's been beautiful and very, very gentle to do it with you. <laughs> yeah, it's been wonderful. Thanks so much. Thank you so much.